Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew. Alrighty, we are back. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you so much for tuning in with us here today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. Of course, sitting alongside my co-founder, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going over there, man? It's going very well. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If you do want to get access to a lot of stuff we're going to be talking about Mm -hmm. in this podcast, and we're always referencing our website, go to focuscompounding.com. And if you are there and you also want to follow me on Twitter, Go to at Focus Compound on Twitter and follow me. Okay. And we could become friends. And you could uh, ask questions of the podcast. Yes. And you can ask questions of the podcast. We are always taking recommendations because not only is this podcast for us, we also want to make it good for other people as well. So definitely shoot us um, some questions. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. Somebody wanted us to talk about mistakes. So mm-hmm. mistakes that we've seen in other investors, mistakes right. that maybe we've made. And I thought sure. probably it's a good um, it's a good topic to go over. And you were actually talking about Buffett after how many decades he did some sort of mistake yeah, lecture he, or something or yes. paper. Yeah. One of his letters uh, starts with uh, mistakes in the sense he started Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. And I think one of the first ones, I don't remember if it's the first one, is that buying Berkshire Hathaway was a mistake. Yeah. It's funny how that worked out. Yeah. Huh? I wish I could so. make that mistake. <laughs> Cool. So let's, uh, I guess we're going to kind of roll with that topic. So I think the right question to ask is we're going to talk about your personal investing mistakes, but I think for a good way to sort of, um, you know, start this is to talk about the mistakes that you see other investors make all the time. Okay. Because, you know, maybe that could be relatable to a lot of the listeners. Right. So if you had to sort of boil it down to the number one mistake that investors make from maybe withholding their true potential as investors or getting better. You know, take away maybe just um, you know making a wrong investment, mm-hmm. um, like an analytical error. But what do you think is the mistake that most people make when it comes to becoming a better investor? They think the stock price is telling them things. Really? Yeah. So do you so do you get emails a lot too by people who say I don't understand why is the stock yes. doing? Yeah, I do all the time uh, too. All the time. You know what my answer is a lot of time to that. What? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So telling them good things and telling them bad things. Yeah. The, 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 the stock price is, is um, talking to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it. So you think it's, so what do you imply? So like, for example, if a stock is cheap, they may say, well, why is it cheap? Or is it cheap for a reason, for I, I, example? Once they start following a stock. Yeah. So, it, the, the, a st- so it's interesting. A stock price, which is very useful information, the level of a stock. Of course. You know, when you buy and when you sell it, it's very good. Those points are very important. But what I'm talking about is movement is the change from one level to another. And yeah. that happens in a day. So if a stock's down 6% a day, there must be news that someone knows because why else would that happen? And it's funny, especially in the, the space that we operate in, mm-hmm. sometimes I'll see like a bigger stock price movement. Right. And then you check the volume on the day and it's on like 500 shares right. or 600 so shares. It's, big, it's just, yeah. it's insignificant. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of people, they sort of assume it's like you probably own more shares than this person does. So why right. are you so freaked out? You know what I'm saying? Yes. So like yeah. to me, I I don't, that that's sort of how I think about the it. The liquid yeah. stocks. And it may be because they're used to looking at liquid stocks, but liquid stocks have a similar thing, which is not um, low volume, but 
um, when big things are happening in the world or in the market or something. Mm-hmm. And so people will, will uh, think that there's a lot of information about that that stock when really um, there isn't, you know, when really uh, there's panic or something, right? And so uh, I think it's best to ignore, uh, certainly it's best to ignore price movements that happen on low volume, but I also think it's best to ignore price movements that happen on um, big news sorts of days. You know, if it's a day where the market, and we've had some days that aren't far different from what I'm going to talk about here in the last uh, few months or whatever, where, you know, if the market is down at some point during the day, two or 3%, and it ends up two or 3% or something, that's a day that you probably, that's the day when most people are paying the most attention to the market and caring the most about it. But that's probably the least informative in terms of uh, what you're being told about from stock prices because it's not particularly rational whatever was happening there. There's you know panic. There's a a sense of um, a lot of emotion and things into it. Versus if people wanted to know about what what price movements do tell you something, mm-hmm. long term price movements driven by you know um, underlying values in the stock or something over a period of time. So you know um, even things where like we talk about. Uh, frost or something which i thought was cheap um when rates were at like zero percent and then it got um progressively more expensive uh, the stock went up a lot um as the fed funds rate was raised many times right that's something that does tell you something you can explain what that was from sure and why that happened but it's something that happens over a long period of time um and there's a reason for it that way yeah you know what's interesting how um when the stock price goes up yeah, and there's no news on it. Nobody mm-hmm. says a thing. It's, right. uh, it's the answer is oh, people must be buying it up, right? But uh-huh. or bidding it up when the stock price goes down, let's say the same amount. That's when everyone's like, hmm, you know, what's going on? Am I, yeah. am I starting to freak out? Did I miss something? Right. Yeah. And uh, the, the the a big issue with the stock price changes are just the way that it can feed back into your thinking about the company and yeah. things like that. So the same news, the same for for example, the same earnings report that someone at first thought was, oh, that's kind of what I expected. When the stock drops 5%, they think, oh, that was a bad earnings. (laughs) Did I I miss something? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, So just the way in which it feeds into other things. And like um, journalists are going to write more negative things about a stock that's down 50% or something and getting attention than they are something that's flat or up or something like that. So it can change the narrative that they're hearing about and start to feed into other things. Mm -hmm. So if somebody can improve Mm -hmm. on this this mistake that you say yeah. you see a lot of people make, which is thinking that the stock price is moving for certain reasons, right? right? What would you say? How can they do that? Uh, one is to check the stock prices less often. Uh, two is... Which, how long would you say? How often? <laughs> we talked about this before. I, I, I was talking to someone recently and I said, uh, I don't think they need to check it more than once a week. But is that realistic? <laughs> I don't know. For some people, it may not be realistic. It's certainly realistic to to me. I don't see if, I'm if, if trying any of to... our investors are listening. I check the prices often. So <laughs> okay. Don't worry, Jeff doesn't check once a week. <laughs> um, I uh, the, the reason for that is well, for one thing, because there'll be a you know a random walk to it. Sure. That you'll you'll perceive more movement in something if you check it more often, and especially in I guess a more inefficient space like illiquid stocks or mm-hmm. whatever. There's probably more of a random walk. Yeah. Than I guess more uh, larger cap stocks. Right, but even larger cap stocks um, may move, may seem to move uh, enough that someone would notice. 
uh, during the week, and yet after a week isn't really in that much of a different position than it was the week before. Yeah. And when you narrow the number of points that you're looking at, then you start to see less and less uh, movement. You're starting to perceive less and less movement. So that's one thing that I would say about it. Um, and the other thing is to try to think about it not as moving but as the prices. So to focus on prices as points and less as movement. So can you explain that? Yeah. So like uh, to think in terms of, okay, this is $20 rather than this went from $25 to $20. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I think is a problem. Being sort of obsessed about the price of a stock, that it's too that it's low enough that I should do something or too high or something, I don't think there's anything wrong with being very focused on price. I think there's something wrong with being focused on price movements, uh, which are very different. Because the, the price, you, you do need to pay a lot of attention to price in terms of getting good price to buy at and getting a good price to sell at. But you don't need to worry much about what's happening in, in between those two things. Sure. And so um, I think there's a lot of ways to be able to do that. So at what point do your ears get perked, do you think? In terms so, of, so like, yeah. for example, you you buy a stock, um, KEWL, at around right. $100, and now it's at 77 At what point do your ears start to get perked? Um... Or is it more so you're comfortable with it because it's not like the underlying asset has changed. I mean, our theory is that, you know, they have some board changes. People are, you know. I was interested with the board changes. And I remember I appraised the stock for uh, a write-up. See, see, I'm normally writing down a number that I think the stock is worth, basically. Yeah. So in that case, I would have said, you know, it's not worth less than $100. And I had talked with someone who said it's worth 117, and I said certainly I don't have a strong feeling that it's cl- worth closer to 100 than 117. So that's a good example of you can say, okay, so he probably thinks the stock is worth like 110 or something in mm-hmm. the neighborhood, right? So when the stock gets down to a point that's 80, let's say, well, you divide 80 by 110, and you're starting to get a percentage of intrinsic value that's low enough that you go, oh, there's a margin of safety there. Sure. So yeah, so 80, yeah, that would interest me a lot, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't really think that... No, but I'm saying, like, for example, when you, let's say, uh, for people that own the stock, at what point do your ears start to get perked on, hmm, maybe this movement is a little bit... You know what I'm saying, or no? Well, like, for instance, in, in um, KWL, um, the way that worked is that after the um, board meeting... Yeah. It, uh, after the board election, I mean, where where a, a major shareholder took over the board, basically. Cornwall Capital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock declined consistently for a very long time yes and it was a uh, sort of slow but consistent declines in countless down days and stuff uh, i got so many emails about that mm-hmm. because of the way in which it declined which is instead that, of like it being like a sharp down move yeah it, just because it's a slow it was, grind down it, everyone said every time i check it it's even lower than it was before <laughs> right sure so that's what i mean about movement yeah that was the thing about it Whereas to me, it's about taking the number of the stock price and dividing into what I think the intrinsic value is. Yes. To me, there, okay, there was a board election, Mm -hmm. and then there were earnings releases that happened every 90 days. So we're talking about a period of about six months where it kept declining. I saw three times where there was anything of news uh, worthiness to pay any attention to in that stock. Yeah. So there's 180 days, and there was countless trading days and whatever, but there were only three days that I thought anything worth reading about, learning about happened. When the board changed over and then when the uh, they released earnings because they put out a press release each time yeah. saying a little bit about their plans mm-hmm. and, and what management was leaving and whether they had sold any land and stuff like that. But that's it. So uh, I don't – yeah, I don't think you need to check more than once a week. And I think that rarely are there going to be things that change your opinion about a company entirely more often than once every three months when they come out with earnings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and um, for, I mean, so th- so there's just too much focus on that part of it, a- and uh, focus on the focusing on the price is very useful like to get a good price to buy in at and to take those moments to opportunistically buy the stock i mean you and i see when we put in bids for things and stuff for the managed accounts and things like that and we do have things where a stock we may not buy a stock for a while and then it gets down to a certain level again that we bought at before and we may buy it then or you know it's not very even at what points we buy something so it's not like you're not taking advantage of certain prices yeah i'm talking about something totally different than that which is the, the price movements, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, if I like NACO at $32 or something, and then it goes up to 47 but I don't want to sell it at any point, you know, that's not close to what I think the intrinsic value is. Then when it comes back down to 30 or something, you might want to buy it. Sure. So, but I think the fact that it's under a price where you really liked it before is really good information to have and to worry about. The fact that it went up a lot and then went back down a lot, I think is not something to worry about. Yeah. What are, do you think... The most mistakes you see, like analytically, when people email you or just stuff in that regard, like so, when it actually comes to investing, not just like the stock price movements and stuff. Um, there's a um, probably too much focus on um, uh, standard metrics, so, so like price earnings, like price earnings, being very EV yeah. to EBITDA, things that can be reported now, and not enough worrying about so um, calculating too much and just thinking too little yeah not enough worrying about what other things would um, someone look at this business and think it was worth so like uh for instance that they'll it'll be about an oil company or something there'll be a ton of information about ev to ebitda and things like that yeah but there won't be much information about um how long uh their uh reserves would last so is this a company that if it doesn't um uh buy any new reserves will would basically be unable to meet its dividend and earnings and stuff in 15 years or in 100 years Mm -hmm. right so that would be very different those things and i mean that seriously so i've seen things where someone um uh, doesn't note at all that a company could produce at the level that it's producing now indefinitely right for like beyond the point that you would do a dcf calculation or something without needing to replace its reserves and cases that are like 15 years of reserves they'll often treat those things the same without looking into it so that's just something that's common sense would say okay well if you're taking something out of the ground how much longer do you have to do that sure um and and that's true also for businesses that are uh, metaphorically the same thing is happening right so if it's something like okay like say you own a beeper company or something well there's some small group of people who have to use beepers i'm sure yeah uh, to this day but will they still be no system that can replace it in 15 years sure if there will be and you expect there will be then this free cash flow is very different from the free cash flow that like uh google produces or something you know do you think um like analysts and people rely or individual investors i guess rely too much on analyst reports like make the mistake of that do you think that's good to do to sort of... I mean, if you come at mm-hmm. it... I think it's okay to do if you come at it with the mindset that it's an analyst report, right? And that you're just... Or like, it's almost like reading the short side of a story, even if you're long, yeah. just to understand it, to see what other people are thinking. Uh, sort of like the varying perception. Yeah, I find analysts um, are surprisingly uh, well-informed. Well, they get a lot and, of them get access to... I mean, speak to yeah, management and stuff, and, and if they f- specialize in the industry. Yeah, and understand the industry well compared to what they put out as recommendations. Um, I think if you ignore the headline of what you're getting from analysts 
and pay attention to what they're talking about. Um, if, if you're mining analyst reports and uh, for information, I think that's very useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, b- but in general, I'd be su- like, I am always surprised at how you can read something an analyst has written and be really impressed with their understanding of the business. And how none of the questions they ask on a call apply for more to than that. a quarter. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, because that's their job, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're worrying a lot about something that's very hard to predict. Mm-hmm. Instead of when they could be worrying about predicting what the situation will be in five years, they're worrying about what it'll be in five weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What do you think is the biggest mistake people make when it comes to thinking about management? Oh, well, that one's pretty easy. Um, they... So <laughs> yeah, I think the inter- most interesting yeah. thing is there's almost two sides to this, right? So I thought it was kind of fascinating when Peter Rabover of Arco Capital mm-hmm. came on and he was talking about how, because he operates in sort of the same space that we do, mm-hmm. and how sometimes dealing with these smaller companies, a lot of people are like, well, their biggest buff with management is, well, why don't they own more stock? Okay. And Peter, or Peter sort of said, mm-hmm. you know, well, I kind of understand why a lot of, you know, a lot of them are maybe younger or earlier on in their career. Mm-hmm. and they're not earning these multi multi million dollar contracts right. or, or salaries and stuff mm-hmm. and you know peter's like hey you know i have he talked to a couple of management uh different managements and like hey you know i have kids and i have a house mm-hmm. and um he doesn't have as much as a buff with management owning as much stock as like a lot of other people do but maybe that's just in the, the size that we're operating in yeah i mean the thing that i see all the time is um uh, the they the mistake that people make is they love or hate management because they feel that they've been treated justly or unjustly by management basically so so explain. they don't think about it from the perspective uh, they basically make management to a hero or a villain instead yeah. of seeing it from the perspective of management yeah. which can help you even if they maybe are not so some, are you are sometimes you, you can benefit from management even if their intent is to get themselves rich or something yeah um and sometimes uh and sometimes a company can fail or something for reasons that have nothing to do with uh, management lining their own pockets or something. It's just that it's an impossibly difficult situation that they yeah. were in, you know? Do you think people make the mistake of, like, just forgetting that it is a real business? When I brought on mm-hmm. Jeff Johnson, the CEO, he said that that was sort of a, um, I don't know if he's described as like a learning curve, but, um, or a slap in the face. You go mm-hmm. from running a, a private company where this right. is like your own you know, your baby and yeah. you make all those decisions. You don't have to answer to anybody to now you're dealing with analysts or asking about next quarter, next right. year, like, or next two quarters. Like they're not the ones that like, you're not the one that's just grinding it out every single day. They just care yes. so much about next quarter. Yeah, that's true. Um, and the, the, I mean, obviously investors care a lot more about the stock than management does for yeah. a bunch of different reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've talked a little bit about that before of like, there's definitely cases where management, um, is going to care a lot more about the importance of the company long term. Yeah. Um, the in their industry, they may care more about employees and whether they're taken care of well or not, sure. and things like that. Um, and other managements, that's not true at all. They may care about how well they do in, in selling it in a short amount of time and stuff. Um, it depends on the person. But yeah, because um, I've talked to like before about Barnes and Noble or something, which um, although and they owned a lot of stock, uh, the Riggio family. But they cared a lot about the Barnes and Noble name and the like publishing as an industry uh, and books, you know, specifically. They, they had a lot of attachment to that. That was 
different from a purely um, an interest in financially, you know, just getting rich or not. Mm-hmm. There were, and that's typical in that kind of industry. Uh, I talked once before about uh, DreamWorks Animation, um, and that's the same sort of thing. I think it's difficult for people to understand, like, uh, difficult for investors to understand Hollywood and things like that. Because, um, well, sometimes the people at the very top of, you know, your Disney or your Fox or something are very financially oriented. At lower levels, uh, they are meeting targets and things and, and caring about the financials to a much lesser. That's not sure. why they're in the industry. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so uh, even people pretty high up at executive levels and stuff, they have a lot of other concerns about what they're trying to do. Um including pleasing the public and winning awards and things like that. Uh, and money is just something that they have to make do to keep their jobs. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is ways that people can sort of improve on this? So we have um, for stock prices, checking yeah. it less, mm-hmm. right? Or if you do check it often, just understand that it's more of a random walk than anything. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes to thinking about management, what would you say? Yeah, well, it's just purely putting yourself in management shoes basically yeah of just sitting down and saying like just intellectually saying okay uh what would i be doing what would i be thinking if i was in this situation because it's purely something where um it's sort of people get this it's sort of you get this with a lot of things where people are outraged about something yeah where they're outraged that they've been treated unfairly but when they flip it around they go oh well you know i would do that if i was i can understand why they would do that in that in their situation yeah and so um yeah, I would say that that's a big one for management. And and divorcing the idea of whether management is um, – how do I put this? Whether management um, has the same sort of philosophy and, and things like that as you do versus what they're likely to do. So like uh, I've talked sometimes about very small companies where uh, investors hate that they pile up lots and lots of cash. Yeah. But from the manager's perspective in those situations, owner-manager, um, they – the reason why they tend to do that is because they only know the one business they have. Yeah. They're very frightened to buy another business they know nothing about, mm-hmm. right? Which would then get earnings or something. They don't really want to return the money that they have to investors and things like that. Yeah. If they pay down dividends, they themselves would just end up with a lot of money that outside the company, which is the same problem for them that they would have when it's inside the company. Sure. And um, they would feel greater danger because they probably is comforting to them to see that there is uh several years of earnings cash piled up in bank. cash yeah. that no matter how bad years get and things like that um and especially people who've gone through bad periods in a uh industry or mm-hmm. something you know so there'll be people who complain about that some you know bank isn't loaning out enough money or something but if it went through the late 1980s early 1990s in texas or something they'll for a long time be very afraid that will repeat yeah sure what mistake do you think individuals make when crafting an actual portfolio i would probably say owning too many stocks that they don't know a lot about yeah that would be the big one is the ratio of um how much they're doing versus how much they're thinking about what they're doing yeah so it's really that they're you know they own a lot of stocks that they've looked very little into um, it could be okay to own a lot of stocks if you spend a lot of time thinking about each of them, but mm-hmm. that's unlikely. You know, the more and more you own, the less likely you have been thinking about it. So they're quick to buy a lot of different stocks and quick to sell them. I was going to say probably also selling too quickly or selling just for the sake of selling. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, there is a thing where people tend to, what's that saying? You can't attractive. go broke taking a profit. Yeah. People on the site that one. Yeah. It's and, like, okay, as you just made like a couple percent on your investment. Yeah. Well, just that people tend to want to do something a, a lot. Yeah. Um, and that gets into the price moving things and stuff, which is that if a stock goes um, up or down 
uh, a huge amount. People feel like they should do something. Yeah. Right. Like they should sell or they should buy more. They should, you know, it just sort of triggers a, a feeling that they are, there's a need to take action when maybe there isn't. I mean, in general, you don't want to take an action unless you've any economic action, unless you feel like you're considering this versus the next best alternative. And you can see the next best alternative is clearly better in this case. So you're kind of comparing the two possibilities. So you don't want to just be like, oh, I want to get out of bonds. You want to go, oh, I can compare bonds and the S&P 500 and see, oh, the S&P 500 is clearly the better choice right now. That's why I'm getting out of bonds. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're just freaking out about something and you're not really sure, that's not when you want to make a decision. Do you think people aren't like agnostic as as much to when it comes to like certain industries? Like they'll just say, oh, I, I don't. I don't care about the steel business, so there's probably not opportunity there. Or I don't care yeah. about the oil comp- the oil industry, so there's probably I'm not going to even go in that industry. That's possible. Yeah, a lot of people a lot of people do have pretty um, I don't know how to put it exactly. They sometimes have pretty strong opinions about things that they may not have researched that much. You I know, mean, like people, into? a lot of people were very surprised. I think when they heard that we were buying a coal company or when you wrote up right. about a coal company. True. Yeah. Right. And if you sort of had that mindset going into it, you probably wouldn't have ever invested in ACO. That's absolutely true. Yeah. When, you know, when you actually looked under the hood, it's a little bit different than most coal companies. Yeah. I would rank coal as one of the things I'd be least likely ever to buy. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I have to say that it, then that can just be a mistake, mm-hmm. but it can also be something that, um, happens because you you know look at, at the specifics of some situation you know um yeah I, I think it's a good idea to be somewhat um yeah like you said agnostic or something about a lot of different yeah. yeah about a lot of situations where you say i don't really know um whether this is the right stock for me or something to own but i'm open to learning about it and looking at it and um it, not just saying i won't do that i you know i try i'm a value investor I try not to immediately eliminate the possibility of that there's sense in, you know, growth things and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. You try to do that. I think suspending judgment is a good idea for a lot of people. It, even when it comes to the size ones. of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people that they say like, oh, I'm mid-cap, mid-cap growth or, you know right. what I'm saying, GARP. And, or, mm-hmm. I mean, but they just like stick to certain things i guess they like they may be like i only invest in like large caps or i only invest in mid caps which i guess we yeah. only invest in small caps we only invest, so. yeah i mean well we don't only invest in small caps we only invest like in micro, specific yeah. yeah and specifically overlooked stocks of yeah. some sort yeah i think that's not a bad thing to do though if you keep open your judgment about other things which is i think it's a really good idea to specialize in something like yeah. i think it's um charlie munger talked once about um that he knew someone who specialized only in um that he would only invest in service companies to Uh invest in any manufacturing or retail. I think that's a very smart thing to do. But you don't want to have the opinion that, oh, well, services are great businesses and all manufacturing and retail are terrible. Mm -hmm. Just the opinion that, oh, I I really understand this niche and this is something where I can be better at it than other people. But not closing your mind off to it that, you know, um, just because you might not be able to see that Amazon's going to be a big thing uh, early on, that doesn't mean that you dismiss the possibility uh, of it being a stock that will roar people. So like Bitcoin? <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> what is the biggest investment mistake you think you've made? Other than just being too general, like with PE or, or like what you referenced earlier in the show. That I've made personally? Yes. Oh, I've made several. Um, I would say uh, there's, uh, I'll put in the same category that Buffett does, which is mistakes of omission and mistakes of commission. 
Um, so mistakes of omission would be just things that I should have bought or something that I didn't. Yeah. Right? And then we've talked in the past, I think, about DreamWorks Animation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really good example, uh, not just that stock specifically, but that's just a good example of almost all of my mistakes of omission, which are um, – the things I didn't buy are usually because they sort of didn't tick all the value boxes or something like that. They just didn't look right on the metrics there. But it was something where I could tell, like by common sense, that it was um, worth more than it was selling for. That's mm-hmm. the biggest mistake is knowing something's worth more than it's selling for and letting more complex uh, value theories and things get in the way of that. So like, what do you mean by that? Complex value theories. Uh, things like, oh, you should buy, uh, it should have a low EVD, but I yeah. should have a low price to book. Mm-hmm. Um, it should have, you know, what, whatever other things there might be that way. Um, the, oh, the ones that have been, often when I can tell, uh, that, well, how do I put this? It's, it's very rare that uh, I would do badly in a big way and, and often would do pretty well, have a pretty high hit rate. If I invested only in things that seem to me to be clearly cheap, um, regardless of sort of the metrics of it, um, the kind of thing that I would give for that example is a thing like I've talked about Frost before a lot. Yeah. But Frost is a really good example because looking at it, uh, my co-writer on that newsletter and I um, really said, okay, we're convinced this is cheap, but now the difficult part is trying to convince our subscribers. Sure. If I yeah. only invested in things that I thought were cheap, that I was like convinced – we're cheap, but it's going to be hard to explain this to clients. Yeah. Those would be, that would be a really good portfolio. Sure. Because it's sort of the things that um, you're really convinced of the cheapness on a sort of common sense, very logical basis. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily fit in with um, a lot of the quantitative approaches that people use for things or just sort of the, you know, um, uh, yeah, it's just something that after learning about it, you know, we talked about like Maui Land and Pineapple or something, learning about the asset and talking to people or whatever. Mm-hmm. You figure out whether it's cheap or not, and then if it's really cheap, then you know you go ahead and and you buy it. And so I've there's there certainly have been some that I didn't buy, even though I was convinced that they were cheap. Mm-hmm. And usually it's those sorts of things. It's the sort of things that are like almost always the stock appears on the quantitative basis to be only a little bit cheap. You know, it's the kind of thing that's like oh the P is thirteen or something. You know, and you're like okay, well that's not too expensive, but that's not really exactly a value stock. Yeah. You know. It's always those, but then uh, when you learn a lot about it, you convince yourself that it's uh, actually is very cheap. So uh, yeah, I would agree with that. And I would think my, I think mm-hmm. uh, you didn't ask me, but I think the biggest mistake yeah. a lot of individuals make is they think too much about the valuation. Okay. And they sort of let that take away from learning about the actual company itself. So, <coughs> excuse me. No, you're yeah. serious. <laughs> so if you think about um, like our list that we talked about in the last podcast, there's five different things there. Okay. Yeah. One of them. One of the filters is, is it cheap? That's Everything one, else yeah. is on the actual quality of the business, the actual right. business, and actually understanding the company. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people make a lot of mistakes on on doing that. They sort of fuss up about like their DCFs and and, yeah. and thinking through like the valuation like that. I mean, I think the valuation, I don't want to say is the easiest part, but it's more, for me, it's more theoretical than 
actually it being like a cold cut number like that comes out mm-hmm. of a dcf if that makes sense yeah and and it's important to point out here how that price can be very useful but uh what you said i think is true because like we had a podcast we talked to nate and um nate has said before in some blog posts and things that nate tobik oddball stocks yeah, yes. oddball stocks um that you know a big mistake is like just not buying the thing with the p of two yeah and i think that's absolutely true i think people spend way too much time thinking oh does it have a p of 17 or 12 and what's really important is avoid the stocks with the P of 40 and look really hard at the stocks with the P of two, you know, yeah, sure. the, the, the stocks that, that have the, you know, P of five and below and stuff. And the stocks that have the P's of 30, 50, hundred, whatever are really more what we're talking about. It's that people do spend a lot of time with a lot of precision in things that, you know, is it 10% too cheap or 10% too expensive? Yeah. That's usually not going to be as important if you understand the business that looks 10% too expensive really well and you really like it. In the long run, that's probably going to outperform. But there's nothing wrong with buying, you know, um, I, th- I think buying on the basis of cheapness is great when you have net nets and things. Things are incredibly cheap. Sure. Just as it makes sense, I don't do it personally, but it makes sense to buy, to pay a, what seems to be a very high price for something that is a truly great business. Mm-hmm. The problem is really trying to differentiate in the um, things that are much closer, the more average things, which I think is people spend a lot of time worrying about. Is this stock worth you know, um, should I put the right multiple be eight times EBITDA or yeah, 10 sure. times EBITDA? Yeah, and that's what I was kind yeah. of referring to. Yeah, I actually, absolutely. I think doing a reverse DCF is probably, I personally think it's better than doing a normal DCF just to see yeah. what the market's implying, what other people think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I would say that's true. Too. I think it's just a good way to to uh, reverse engineer it. Cool. Well, any other thoughts to add on mistakes that investors make? Yeah, I would say that on mistakes of commission, the actual mistakes that I've made um, that have cost money, me money and things like that, I would say they're all related to riskiness, usually with uh, leverage, financial leverage and operating leverage, mm-hmm. where I really like the business or something like that, but it might have um, too much debt or something like that that yeah. would cause the risk. Yeah, definitely. So a good way to sort of guard against that is obviously probably check like the debt to EBITDA. And then we also yeah. talked about in the last ref or the last podcast, um, you could like check like the credit reports on the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another good way to, which is is kind of unrelated to leverage, but we always talk about does the stock work geometrically over time? So take yeah. like a long term stock chart. You could take it from like what even like thirty years ago, forty years, yeah. or get the longest one that you have, and see how the stock is done over time. Yeah, and this is completely unrelated to like leverage and debt and stuff. But I'm just right. saying like it working over time. Yeah. So see if it works geometrically, if it if it mm-hmm. makes sense, and if it's over time gone up. Yeah. Both in real terms as well. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good example of like Warren Buffett's very good at investing in those sorts of things. I'd say that, um, in terms of, uh, not just like mistakes that people make, but in terms of stocks that people bring me that I'm, that they're really excited about and I'm kind of uninterested in. Yeah. The one that generally happens is high debt, super cyclical. It looks really, really cheap on like a PE basis. Yeah, sure. But it has like a lot of debt and stuff. If it works out, it'll really pay off well. And they don't say anything that'll cause it to go bankrupt this year or next year or something. But it's the kind of stock that you'd say, do you really want to own this for 10 or 20 years or something? Buffett said, you know, if you don't want to own a stock for 10 years, you probably shouldn't own it at all. For 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's one that a lot of people do email me like, so this is a stock I would never want to own for the long term, but, you know, that sort of thing. So it's more of like a trade than a... Yeah, but do you the, think they're thinking about it more so 
as like a pricing instead of like an actual business thing or what? Yeah, I think they're thinking more of it like in terms of that there's a big upside and they don't see anything in the immediate horizon that's going to be terrible for yeah. it. Yeah, uh-huh. that's a big part of it is like, okay, so nothing terrible is going to happen right away. Um, but it's hard to tell when you do those things because it's like, um, you know, you could know that housing is too expensive or something, but you won't know the moment that the bubble will burst sure. or something like that. Um, I, yeah, that's one that happens a lot with people. And I think that it is uh, the appeal of the – I think it's – I see this a lot where – so obviously people are attracted to things that have really big upside. That's sure. Yeah. And if the really big upside is long-term, that's great. But what tends to happen sometimes is people are excited by a really big upside in the short term. And they tend to – in terms of risk, what seems to happen a lot is that people aren't worried about like the long-term probability that something will go bad, but just that they know it won't go bad really soon. So people get worried if there's like a 5% chance that this thing could go bad in the next three months. Yeah. But they don't get worried that there is no chance in their mind that it'll go bad in the next year or two, but almost certainly that this will blow up in the next 10 or 20 years. That doesn't bother them. You yeah. know what I mean? And that is true. I actually talked to somebody, I won't say what it is, but I actually talked to two or three people who said, oh, yes, in the next 30 years, this thing will definitely blow up. But yeah. That's how this story ends. But I just feel I can invest in it now where we are in the economy and stuff, yeah, and, stuff sure. and it'll be fine. But if you really think that this business model eventually blows up, is that a stock that you should own? You know, and I just think that they're very aware of the risk, but the risk isn't isn't uh, immediate. Yeah, I mean, a stock that has a one in 10, 10 chance of blowing up, it still can, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and and so it, that's a very like, um, it has a lot to do with timing. Where so if something changes, then they suddenly become very worried about it. So like the stock that I mentioned, uh, it's financial related. If we had any sort of um, failures of financial firms and stuff any sense that we were going into the smallest little financial crisis they yeah. would suddenly go oh i won't touch that thing now but the problem is that by that point a lot of other investors probably will have sold that stock and be thinking yeah. the same way everyone will suddenly be very aware of financial risk at that moment you know that's the sort of thing where you're like well when when things change then i'll sell it mm-hmm. you know when you know if you're buying something that you think oh it's fine as long as China's doing well or whatever, well if China's not doing well, you will may have less time than you think to sell that at the price that you want to. Sure. You know? And so I do think that's something I don't know. There's something about the focus on the shorter term, um, in terms of riskiness versus like the longer term. Is this a risky business? Because uh, I think a lot of people can tell the difference between is this a business that may be around for 10 or 20 years and it's pretty safe yeah. versus a business that might not be. But I think we really overestimate our ability to predict when something will go wrong, you know, mm-hmm. how safe it is in the shorter term, you know. No, I think that's great. What company is that again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, for, for a lot of reasons, I don't talk about like short ideas and things. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, don't tell me cause I'll tell everybody. You'll, no, t- you'll no, tell them I'm on sure. Twitter. That will get a, I'm sure they'll get a lot of retweets. There we go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Cool. Well, I think that is great. And obviously, um, you know, talking about reverse engineering a DCF, mm-hmm. reverse engineering mistakes is a great way to become better. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that's uh, that's that's really good. So I'm also curious to hear about what people think other people's big mistakes are when it comes to investing, or maybe their own, because you know yourself yeah. and, and what. I mean, for me, especially in um, you know when I first got started investing, it was mm-hmm. definitely probably more so thinking about it too 
theoretically instead of almost okay. like with a philosophical approach right and caring too much about the last thing which on our list is it cheap right and instead of just actually learning about the companies which i've talked about a lot on the podcast i would say mm-hmm. yeah and i th- this is a weird thing to say i mean it's it's i don't i guess it's not a useful enough thing to say but it is surprising that a lot of the mistakes almost seem like things that can somehow override common sense. A lot of my answers to it would be yeah. uh, not using common sense. Because yeah. even when I say, like you said something about the um, the valuation or something, yeah. that's true. There's nothing wrong with buying really cheap stocks, but it's the sort of things that are like, oh, this is a pretty normal business and it's trading at five times PE. Well, anyone can tell that that's cheap. They yeah. don't need to read a textbook to learn about that. Sure. But we're talking about the situations that are more like in between difficult to assess, right? Mm-hmm. So, same thing with like really high quality companies. It's usually something where it's not a point of a lot of contention that it's a really high quality company. So a lot of these are things where somehow learning about things, uh, you know, learning about investing or something, there's some things that uh, dogma and stuff that can cause you to overlook what common sense is telling you. Yeah. No, I think I think that's great. So thank you so much to everybody for tuning in with us here today. Jeff, tell them what, what should they do? What, what, do the outro for us. Do the outro? Yeah. Where can they get the memos? Okay. There you they go. They can get the memos at Focus Compounding. That's right. And you'll get a weekly memo from me, and all you have to do is give us the email address. You can also become a member. You save $10 if you use the promo code podcast. And you can follow Andrew at Focused Compound on Twitter. That's right. And if you want to get a hold of me, that is info at focusedcompound.com. If you want to get a hold of Jeff, that's gannoninvesting at gmail.com. And if Jeff doesn't respond, shoot the email to me. I'll make sure you get it. (laughs) Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.